Please listen carefully. Members of the political class have shown a complete and utter unwillingness to actually serve the people. They are there to obtain privilege, power, and money. This is, of course, obscene, but not everyone in Mexico sees it. That was a sneak peek of what you can expect in this episode of The Week That Was at Global Voices, the podcast where we introduce you to people, places, and events from around the world that aren't getting the media coverage they deserve. I'm Sahar, Managing Editor at Global Voices. I live right outside of San Francisco. And I'm Lauren, News Editor at Global Voices. I live in Bilbao, Spain. The Week That Was podcast takes a look at some of the stories that have recently come out of the Global Voices newsroom. This week, we'll speak to our contributors, Elizabeth Rivera, Giovanna Salazar, and Juan Tadeo, who you just heard earlier, about popular discontent with politics in Mexico. We'll also take you to Colombia, India, Syria, and the United States, where we'll meet adults and children alike who are driven to make a difference. But first, to Mexico. Mexicanos, viva los héroes que nos dieron patria y libertad. Mexico's Independence Day is September 16th, and tradition goes that the country's president kicks off the celebrations. He does so by recreating the so-called cry of independence from the balcony of the National Palace in Mexico City. Viva Mexico! Viva Mexico! Viva Mexico! This is in remembrance of the start of the war for independence from Spain 200 years ago. This year, as Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto was giving the customary cry, thousands of people were marching elsewhere in the city demanding that he resign. They say that, quote, reasons abound for why the president should quit. So why are Mexicans so upset with him? A state that is not taking care of its people, on the contrary, it's cracking down on its own people. A very wary situation for journalists, blatant corruption scandals, promises that haven't been fulfilled. It's just things adding and adding and adding and adding up. And of course, if you see the whole picture, it's like, oh, why, why is such a government still there? That's Elizabeth Rivera, who lives in Chile, but was born in Mexico City. She's one of Global Voices editors for Latin America, and it also helps run our stellar social media team. The latest protest, I guess, is just a way of saying no to him and no to that political party and not to that uh, way of doing politics. What Peña Nieto represents, he is the epitome of a president that goes with the old school politics in Mexico. That's Giovanna Salazar, a Global Voices contributor who's also originally from Mexico City. She currently lives in Amsterdam, where she researches new media and digital culture. Well, I think he represents the political class. Members of the political class have shown a complete and utter unwillingness to actually serve the people. They are there to obtain privilege, power, and money. This is, of course, obscene, but not everyone in Mexico sees it. And that's Juan Tadeo, a Mexican lawyer and longtime Global Voices contributor. In addition to Global Voices, he's a blogger who writes about everything from justice, politics, transparency, to music and football. In this case, the phrase, be careful what you wish for, comes to my mind. Um, I don't think these people demanding the resignation of the president have thought this through. 
At this point in time, if Peña resigns, executive powers will pass to Mr. Osorio Chong, who is currently in charge of the Ministry of the Interior. Both Osorio Chong and Peña come from the same political party. Then the Congress will elect a substitute president to finish Peña's term. Let us not forget Peña's political party and its allies hold a majority in the Congress. So we could expect more of the same for sure. All the scenarios involving a president's resignation encompass a great deal of unrest and instability. And I think we, sh we should ask ourselves, is this really the best course of action? Is this really a good idea? Well, is it a good idea? Lorna and I spoke to Elizabeth, Giovanna, and Tadeo, our in-house Mexico experts, to get a handle of what is going on in Mexico. Could one of you list some of the, the larger reasons that people say and point to and say this is why Peña shouldn't be in office anymore? It's not that Peña Nieto has had a bad month. I think he has a bad period overall. This is a party that was in power for more than 70 years before he came in before brief government by the conservative party for two periods and then they came back. So he kind of represents that old school politics in Mexico. There's a human rights crisis that the country is going through and one of the most specific examples that comes into mind is the disappearance of the 43 students from Ayotzinapa that happened in 2014. Let's hit pause here for a minute. Lauren, could you explain what happened here? In 2014, 43 student teachers from the Mexican town of Ayotzinapa were detained by police on their way back from a protest. They then disappeared. Authorities concluded that, on the orders of the local mayor, they were handed over to an organized crime syndicate and murdered, although most of their bodies have never been found. The case sparked protests and became a high-profile example of the corruption and human rights abuses that happen with disturbing frequency in Mexico. That's just a window onto the tens of thousands of others that have disappeared during this administration and during the escalation of violence because of the drug war. I think uh, human rights is a big deal. It's a big problem for this government, but people are more concerned about other things. For instance, President Peña presented himself as this big politician who could reform Mexico, who could bring all the, the legal reforms that would change the country. And that has not happened. The, the legal reforms have failed. For instance, gas prices are rising, electricity is not as cheap as it was supposed to be after this reform, uh, education reform is failing miserably in Oaxaca, in Chiapas, in these places where protests have have paralyzed the states and the teachers have taken to the streets to uh, demonstrate that they are not willing to be part of this reform. So what President Peña tried to do has not been helpful at all and it's not working. And I think that's why the people are angry. Specifically, his administration has been surrounded by, by several scandals. Not only uh, the fact that he invited Trump recently, the fact that he allegedly plagiarized his thesis. Let's explain some of those scandals. First up, his plagiarized thesis. 
In August, a famed Mexican journalist revealed that Peña Nieto appeared to have plagiarized parts of his law degree thesis. He tried to pass off excerpts of work from historians, legal academics, and even an ex-president as his own. And then there's Peña Nieto's well-publicized dance with Trump. Peña Nieto was on the receiving end of outrage in Mexico when U.S. presidential candidate Donald Trump visited the country at his invitation in August. Peña Nieto had invited Hillary Clinton as well, but she declined. Trump, of course, has made disparaging comments against Mexicans during his campaign and even promised to halt undocumented immigration by building a physical wall along the southern U.S. border and having Mexico pay for it, which of course Peña Nieto says won't happen. After Trump's visit, Mexico's finance minister, who is a close aide to Peña Nieto and who played a key role in orchestrating the meeting with Trump, resigned. I mean, those are sort of like the breaking points, but there's also like this human rights crisis, the rampant impunity and corruption also, that most exemplified by the fact that he was involved in this in, in buying like a $7 million mansion from a government contractor. Corruption is a serious problem in Mexico. In the 2015 Corruption Perceptions Index from the NGO Transparency International, Mexico ranked 95 out of 167. In this case, the lower the number, the less corruption people believe is happening in their country. President Peña Nieto hasn't helped that perception. Two years into his presidency, a news website revealed that a favored government contractor had built a multi-million dollar mansion for his family shortly before he was elected. That company, called Grupo Iga, is owned by a personal friend of Peña Nieto and has won contracts from the federal government since Peña Nieto took office. The stories about flagrant corruption do not always get to the mountains in the south or the agricultural fields in the north. But then on the other side, this old way of doing politics is also about patronizing people. So he gets a lot of, of attention in rural areas or poor areas by giving them subsidies. When you're on social media, do you sometimes feel they're disconnected from how other Mexicans feel? And are these protests really centered more in urban centers? Does it really have the street power to kind of bring change in Mexico? That the vast majority of Mexicans are not on Twitter or Facebook. Actually, the majority of citizens who cast their vote elected Peña. That's a bit disturbing, but it's the truth. Uh, this is a fact. Only three homes in 10 in Mexico have access to internet. The latest uh, figure is from Inegi show that 46 million Mexicans don't have access to the internet. So that's roughly half the population. Those people are not necessarily against the president and it's and all the things he represents. And let me just add that these people, of course, get their information from traditional media, which is very much in line with the current government. So uh, it would be hard to get another narrative or you know discussion going on when you don't have access to internet and of course to the urban areas where all these discussions are taking place. For our listeners, could you possibly draw a portrait of the kind of person Peña Nieto is? Urban cities at the forefront of questioning um, Peña Nieto's administration, but I do believe that it's very telling that 
he, for example, doesn't hold like regular press conferences. He doesn't take questions from journalists. The events where he regularly takes part in are quite scripted and tight formatted. Uh, he hardly engages in debates or interviews unless it is like in a controlled setting. Questions in terms of how fit he was to be president of the nation since before he came into power as president, as a governor of the Mexico state, uh, he was involved in very serious controversies such as the crackdown that he ordered on a little protest that was taking place in Salvador Atenco. And that happened in 2006. And in that crackdown, people were tortured and women were sexually assaulted. So when he became the candidate for the presidency uh, for the PRI, like a lot of people were like really taken back by the decision. And that's how the movement, for example, Yo Soy 172, emerged. Because, yeah, they were questioning, obviously, the candidacy of the president. Well, I mean, the candidacy of Peña Nieto, but also the fact that his campaign was then favoritized by major media outlets. Let me just add a little bit here. I think this questioning of his fitness also comes on the way he projects himself and how it was all orchestrated for him to become this very uh, popular figure, you, you know, like this arranged marriage, as we see it, with a, with a popular soap opera actress, kind of, you know, make this couple look awesome on pictures and trying to sell that to to the to the voters and that but then on, on the back of that he was selling that this was the new pre the new way of doing politics but then again you saw all the ministers and everybody who's around him and they all have the very last names that uh, of the persons that were in power in the 70s so these double kind of standards of what you see and what you get is struggling around his term so we're talking about all this discontent with Peña Nieto and by extension the political class of Mexico. Is the entire political class of Mexico, you know, rotten? Are they all corrupt or are there bright spots somewhere in in Mexican politics that, you know, people are pointing to and saying, hey, this is how it should be done. This is a good example of how politics should be in a best case scenario. Yeah, I don't think that all the political class is rotten, but the majority of it, it is. Um, I guess one of the examples uh, of a different kind of politician can be seen in Pedro Kumamoto, who was the first member, elected member of parliament that got to the um, Congress in Guadalajara as a representative of Jalisco, and he wasn't backed up by any political party. He had an independent platform, and he was supported by a collective that's called Wikipolitica. And it's very interesting, that example, because it breaks apart from the traditional way of doing politics in the sense that they like engage in meetings with people to hear what their, are their concerns. They present 
in the Congress citizens' initiative back thousands of signatures. Um, I guess that's one of the best examples on how it is possible to actually get into the institutional politics, but not necessarily backed up by a traditional political party, which uh, is considered to be rotten in the roots. Um, I guess it's also worth noting that at least during the last period uh, elections in the state of Chihuahua, Javier Corral was elected and he's a member of uh, a major political party, but he has like a really solid ethic political career and that's also kind of like a really good uh, news in terms of uh, governors getting into high positions who don't necessarily have an agenda that suits their benefit, but rather backed up by citizens. Earlier today, do you have anything to add to that? No, I think Giovanna's examples are great. You have the independent moving movements or candidates coming up, crowdsource <laughs> kind of a party where everybody jumps in and you know has nothing to do with having a political party and all that comes with that. Also, I also raise the question of how we as citizens should uh, also portray the way our politicians should behave. Yes, I think people need to get involved in politics in Mexico and actively demand accountability from public servants. I think that that is the key. Um, in order to get them involved, we need to get them the information unbiased and well-timed information as well as the tools to express their opinions, their concerns, and of course to exercise their rights. I mean, there was there were even jokes about it, but it's I would love to see the same passion Mexicans show when, you know, the, the football team doesn't perform well, the same passion put into accountability and citizenship. Great. Thank you so much, um, all three of you, for taking time out. Thank you all. Thank you, and thank you to everyone listening. Ahlan bikum. That's welcome in Egyptian Arabic. I'm Mohamed Al-Guhari, Lingua Manager at Global Voices. Want to read more about the stories we mentioned in this podcast? You will find them more on our website, globalvoices.org, on Twitter, at Global Voices, and on Facebook.com slash Global Voices Online. The war in Syria has been raging for five years now. During that time, journalists and photographers have continually risked their lives to bring the world coverage of the devastation that the fighting has caused. Some have paid the ultimate price. More than 100 journalists have been killed since the war began in 2011. On October 2nd, the name of Shamil Al-Ahmed was added to the list. Shamil was a well-known Syrian journalist, photographer, and activist. He was killed by an airstrike, one of the many launched by the Assad regime and the Russian government on the city of Aleppo. His wife was also recently killed. The couple left behind a two-week-old baby, 
and to other children. After their deaths, Shamil's last letter to the world was shared on social media. Our Middle East and North Africa editor, Joey Ayoub, is here now to read it. My name is Shamil Al-Ahmad. I am 35 years old, married, and I have two children. My life changed when I saw a video of the Syrian regime security forces while they were humiliating my people and treading on their heads in Baida, Banyas. In July 2012, the freedom fighters entered my city, Aleppo. I became obsessed by the idea of being arrested and detained by security forces. We were out of the regime control and I didn't have to hide my identity anymore. The risk of being detained is over, but my city turned into an open space for the regime to target all of its opponents. Artillery, fighter jets, barrel bombs, and even Scud missiles. We experienced all those lethal weapons that I documented with my lens. I thought these pictures would tell the story and push the international community to act or at least help the civilians. But lately, I realized that that was hopeless. ISIS took over parts of my country. I immediately knew that our battle for freedom would be endless and that Assad was not our only problem. I joined the Life Makers team, working on social development and acclimating them with the new reality, the wartime reality. I sometimes get depressed and disappointed and sometimes lose hope. I spend time with my friends and brothers in revolution who are my hope and source of strength to overcome my depression. Months ago, somebody offered me to join on a boat trip to Europe. We talked about it many times and I was about to accept it, but I eventually said no. Syria is my country and my cause. However, it is not possible to risk my two children's lives at this deadly point. They are all I have in this world. My friend made it to Germany in late 2015. He seemed happy. We Skype every week and he keeps encouraging me to follow his steps. I just keep refusing. Despite all the reasons which increase every day and push me to leave, I am the kind of person who cannot survive away from their streets. Aleppo is part of me. I can't leave it alone. I feel sorry that Aleppo is facing all this horror, but I can still breathe its freedom. I was saddened by friends who I lost and who I'm still losing, especially those who are close and brothers in revolution. Many of them lost hope and are not able to carry on. I don't blame them, but I just feel sorry for not having them around me. I am not against those who decide to leave and seek asylum, because many were forced to do that. I am just against the idea of being there to enjoy life without work or purpose, or without a name to serve their homeland. I don't want them to be a burden on the host communities. Finally, it's not easy to stay in Syria anymore, since nobody knows how their complicated story is going to end. But there is still hope to continue the fight.
Some teachers go the extra mile for their students. In Colombia, Luis Soriano goes miles, literally. Luis is an elementary school teacher, and for years he's roamed the countryside on a donkey, bringing books to children in rural Colombia. The donkey library, as it's called, has volumes on math, literature, geography, English, and history. Luis's entire collection numbers more than 3,000 books, though, of course, the donkeys don't carry them all at once. He has two donkeys, and the animals themselves are named Alpha and Beto, whose names together form the word alfabeto, or alphabet in Spanish. Luis's effort sees him riding a donkey for eight hours at a time. But it's an important service that he's performing for these children. As Luis explains, poor children in Colombia's countryside are at an educational disadvantage. Some children must walk or ride a donkey for up to 40 minutes to reach the closest schools. The children have very few opportunities to go to secondary school. There also aren't that many teachers that are willing to teach in the rural areas. Of his unique library, Luis says, quote, this is a lifetime commitment to feel useful to the society to which I belong. This story was originally reported on the Global Voices website by Gabriela Garcia Calderon. Children are indeed capable of incredible things when given the chance, whether by a donkey riding teacher or someone else. In India, with the help of an NGO, street children have been writing and publishing a newspaper for over a decade now. The newspaper is called Balaknama, which means voice of children in Hindi. In it, the children chronicle their lives and their struggles for their rights. They cover issues like sexual abuse, child labor, and police brutality. The stories are often told from the perspectives of real-life victims. And they also bring stories of hope and positive things happening on the street. Our contributor Palash Ranjan Sanyal originally reported this story on the Global Voices website. The kids who work for the popular paper come from different backgrounds. For instance, the current editor, who is a 17-year-old named Shambu, washes cars during the day for a living. Many of the children whose stories run in Balaknama can't read or write themselves, so their friends and colleagues transcribe their stories on their behalf for the newspaper. According to the estimates from the Indian government, there are over 400,000 street children in India. In the city of Delhi alone, there are 100,000 children living or working on the streets. Most experts, however, think these figures are low. Since its inception, Balaknama has been edited by volunteers of Childhood Enhancement through Training and Action, an NGO that works with street children and children forced into work by their circumstances. Over 8,000 copies, most of them in Hindi, are published every month, and each paper costs two rupees, or about three cents in US dollars. The paper is entirely NGO-funded and makes no profit, but the value it has for these children is priceless. That's Hegel Friends in Ibu. I am Mwachukwe Bunike, 
the Nigerian correspondent for Global Voices. Are you liking this podcast? You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and many other podcast apps. Be sure to subscribe, give us an upvote, or give us a comment. Daguno, thank you. Next, our contributor Tori Eggerman, whose grandparents were immigrants and escaped death to rebuild a home in the United States, reads her essay, A Home Safe from Fear, My American Dream. We've all seen it by now, grieving families, black men and women killed before our eyes, families left without even the hope of justice. And it's finally blindingly obvious to me that black people in America have been undergoing pogrom after pogrom for generations. Black people in the United States have had their history dismissed. They have had their fears dismissed. They have been denied their future and their place in the world. Look it up. Rosewood, Florida, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Hurricane Katrina, Charleston, too much tragedy for me to list, too many pogroms. And just as my great-grandmother once feared for her children, parents of black children still fear for theirs. They share the same concerns. Will they come home whole and alive and unhurt? How can I protect them? What can I do? Where can I go? Unlike my great-grandmother, black people in the United States have nowhere to go. There is no place in the world inviting the huddled masses to their shores, and we all know that. It's not like racist structures aren't global. They are. Ask the Eritreans killed for their organs. Ask the Syrian families wasting away in refugee camps. Ask the refugees locked up by the Australian government. Ask the Latino American families torn apart by heartbreaking policies. Now more than ever, it's time for the United States to make good on its promise to its citizens and its promise to those seeking refuge, life, liberty, home. We have to make the minorities among us feel safe. That is the very least of our responsibilities. We have to put aside our own pain and our own past and all that baggage we carry and make the American dream of home and life without fear real for everyone. This is why I support the Black Lives Matter movement. It's not because my life or anyone else's life matters less. It's because I can't unsee what I've seen. I can't unknow what I know. I can't not put myself in the shoes of a black woman grieving for a loved one. I can't erase history 
or what I know of history. I know when the lives of those around us have value, real value, and we, when we understand their history and see the patterns, we can change those patterns. Me, I used to say, I'm the granddaughter of immigrants. It wasn't my family who owned slaves or wrote the Jim Crow laws. No, we were busy being persecuted in Eastern Europe at a time when America was desperate for immigrants so that they could secure the country from the First Nations and the Mexicans. I could tell myself that I did not contribute to past wrongs. At the time, I didn't understand that those wrongs continued well into the present. Little by little, my privilege became apparent to me. It started small, the ease with which I could get entry-level work, the cops who harassed an Hispanic couple by, for jaywalking when I was doing the same thing at the same time without notice, the cop who laughed at my friend and I as we were smoking weed in a parked car, my African-American colleagues who recounted police harassment as if it was normal because it was normal. They felt it every day. As my former colleague Malcolm Martin told me, I can't even remember the first time I was approached by the police. In more than a half century of life, the police have stopped me two times, twice, two times a month for my colleagues would not have even been remarkable. And that's the tip of the iceberg. It's just what I can see. There have been so many ways I benefited with my apple cheeks and my Shirley Temple curls and my light skin, most of them invisible to me. I still struggle even with my privilege. It's not as though I have no fears. It's not as though I face no injustices. I still carry centuries of pain buried deep in my DNA. There is a great sadness inside me, a looming apocalypse, a well-deserved fear. I'm not going to hide it away. I'm just not going to ask others to put my pain first. I'm not going to make its recognition a requirement for stepping in and doing what little I can. That's a wrap. This is Sahar. And Lauren. Wondering how we find all these stories? Well, we're not exactly like other news organizations. Global Voices is an international network of passionate people who know their way around the internet and keep tabs on the conversations happening in their regions. Our 1,400 mostly volunteer writers, editors, and translators cover stories from 167 countries and then translate them into more than 30 languages. Together, we've been building these bridges of understanding, as we like to call them, through our digital reporting since 2005. 
Inspiring work of all our Global Voices authors, translators, and editors made this episode possible. So a big thank you to all of you out there. Don't forget, if you like what you heard, please share this episode with your friends on Facebook and Twitter. In this episode, we featured Creative Commons licensed music from the Free Music Archive, including Please Listen Carefully by Jazzer, First Steps on Earth by David Seste, Backward by David Seste, Making a Change by Lee Rosevere, Breezen by Poddington Bear, Indian Summer by Zero V, and Cree by Satellite Ensemble. Thanks for tuning in to The Week That Was at Global Voices. We'll have a new episode for you in two weeks. Goodbye until then. <laughs>